from the Lord, didn't he? That's, uh, where is that? First Chronicles chapter 28, you read about that. Chapter 7. Solomon built his own palace. How long did it take him to do that? 13 years. And of course, Hiram, now this is a different Hiram. <laughs> he apparently was really good with working with metals and so forth and all of his work in the temple, all of that in intricate metal work with the gold and all of that that Hiram did. Chapter eight, where we are, well, we're in the second part of chapter eight. Last week, uh, he covered that, uh, that David brought the ark uh, into the most holy place in the temple that Solomon had just built. If you remember back in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7 in the days of Eli, the Israeli army took the ark into battle with them and what happened? They lost it. The Philistines defeated them and they captured the ark, but they didn't keep it very long, as you recall, because they had lots of trouble. And so they sent it back to, to uh, Israel, and it stayed in uh, Kiriath-Jerim, I guess is the way you pronounce that, about 20 years. And then in David's time, he decided that he wanted to bring that ark to Jerusalem. And so he made a brand new ox cart and put that, the ark on it. And, and uh, that would really honor God, right? To put it on a new cart, not gonna use an old used one. But what happened? It's not, what God said. it's not the way God said to do it. And remember Uzzah lost his life when he touched the ark. And so David realized something was wrong. I don't know if David knew all along how he should have transported the ark or not. He should have known there were priests but he didn't. He didn't do it right, and so there was a problem there. And so it stayed at the house of Obed-Edom for three months. And then David figured out what he had done wrong, and so he got the priest and transported the ark and brought it to Jerusalem. Where did he put the ark when he brought it to Jerusalem? He pitched a special tent for it of some kind. All we know is it was a tent, right? And he kept it in that tent. Where was the tabernacle? It was still in a place called Gibeon. So the tabernacle's way over here. The ark is in Jerusalem in this tent. And so now uh, Solomon has, has built the, uh, the temple with the most holy place and he has brought the ark uh, from this tent and put it where it belongs in the temple. And one thing I missed, uh, Brian probably covered this last week and it just went past me, but in uh, chapter eight, verse four, it says, and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting. So apparently they went to Gibeon and, and got the tabernacle and brought it too. Now what they did with it doesn't tell as far as I know. Does anybody know what they did with it? We, we really don't, don't know, but they brought it on the ark and of course then uh, Solomon had it placed where it was supposed to be. And there was a big celebration 
And then uh, Solomon leads us in a prayer, and he had already began that prayer. We're going to resume that prayer in verse 31 of 1 Kings chapter 8. But before we do that, I'm going to continue what Brian's uh, practice was and start off with a question. And my question is this. I'm going to read a passage, and I'm not going to I'm not going to ask you who said it because it's going to be, as the old drill instructor used to say, it's obvious to the most casual observer who said it, but who was the mouthpiece? Who was God's mouthpiece? And where did he record this in the Bible? And it goes like this. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you would build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. Now listen. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So God is saying, your things don't impress me. I don't care anything about that. That's not of any value to me, but... Here is what is of value to me, the God of heaven, and that is the one who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Who said that? Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 66 verses 1 and 2. That's a good verse to memorize and to keep, keep in your head. Uh, Jesus said some similar things, and Micah said some similar things as well. So, what does it mean to be humble? This is important. I mean, let's think about that. It's just today. God says, this is what is of value to me. And it still is today, isn't it? Still is today. So we really need to know what is God saying in this verse? It's important. If you want to be valuable, if you want to be pleasing to God, you're going to have to be humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at God's word. So what does it mean to be Humble. There's the perfect example, isn't it? And we'll be looking at that in just a little while. Uh, so Jesus is a perfect example. Uh, I just read uh, out of a dictionary. It says uh, a low estimate of one's own importance. And basically the humble person is going to consider others more important than self, just like the good Lord did, right? Philippians chapter 2. Okay, what does it mean to be contrite? Humble was the easy one. <laughs> contrite. Sorry and brokenhearted over our sin. Exactly. Again, the dictionary definition says feeling or expressing remorse or penitence dash affected by guilt. I'm guilty and I admit it before the Lord. Okay? That's contrite. What does it mean to tremble at God's word? Fear him. Fear him. Fear in, in the sense of respect, right? Anything else? Tremble at God's word. If 
it's also understanding that God is our master, we are his servant, and we are accountable, and we are responsible, and we must give an account, as every servant has to give an account, for our master one day. So recognize that he is the ultimate authority and we are his servant. That always reminds me of what Samuel said when God called him in the night. He said, speak, Lord, master. So he recognized that God was the master, the one with authority. Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. And the idea is, Lord, whatever you say, that's what I'm going to do, right? That was what Samuel was saying to the Lord. Um, so tremble at God's word. I, I always think of it. It means that you handle God's word very carefully because it's of great value, right? I think about, let's suppose that you had some kind of an antique vase worth millions of dollars. And I wanted to let you take a look at it. So I just walk over here and I'm going to toss it over to David and let him, let him catch it, right? Would you do that with a... $10 million? No, I don't think so. You'd probably have a bubble wrap on it about four feet thick. You know, you, you would be careful. You would tremble <laughs> when you're handling that. And that's the way we should be with God's Word. And I think what we'll see in the next few verses here in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, how all of this is going to apply. And that's why I chose that verse uh, to think about. First Peter 5, verse 5, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Philippians chapter 2, consider other more important than self and contrite. We acknowledge our guilt, confess our sins before the Lord. Any comments about any of that before we begin? Those words were uh, words of wisdom. 3,000 years ago, and they still are, and if the world lasts another 3,000, it'll still be something we should pay attention to. Yes, sir, Brother Gary. Uh, I've known people who would say something like, who, who, who claim to be religious people, who would say something like, you know, something that they shouldn't have said, and they recognize mm -hmm. that it was something they shouldn't have said, or they've done something that they know they shouldn't have done, who would then say right after that, Oh well, I can be forgiven of that, and it it doesn't quite fit in with the idea of trembling in, in terms of taking God's word seriously. But there's some people who just kind of take that approach. We we can't be that way. Yes. What Philippians two and verse twelve says: uh, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What did Solomon say in Ecclesiastes twelve verse thirteen or so? The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments, right? So when it comes to what we teach and what we practice and the way we worship, then uh, we just take a vote and whatever everybody likes the best, that's what we'll do, right? No, we're going to tremble at God. We're going to be very careful with God's word. That's what we're going to do. He's the ultimate authority. We're just the servants. We have no authority at all. Okay.
1 Kings chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. Now, what we're going to see here, and I'm sure you already know because you've studied this lesson already, there are seven <clears throat> scenarios, I'll say, several instances that uh, Solomon is going to talk about. And uh, he's going to ask God to do some things in this prayer. Remember, this is in a prayer. Let's look at uh, verse 31, and then we're going to look at some other passages before we continue with that. Verse 31, if a man sins against his neighbor and, and, and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, remember he's speaking to God, takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. So what? is he talking about? All about this oath and everything. I, I think he's thinking back about Exodus chapter 22 and about verses 6 through 12. Anybody know what that's about? If, if somebody has been injured in some way, and he thinks his neighbor did it. And so he goes to the neighbor, and the neighbor says, no, and he takes an oath and says, no, I didn't do it. Now, so you can either believe him or not. And sometimes, you know, we human beings don't always get that right, even in a court of law, right? Some, sometimes the guilty goes free, and sometimes the innocent gets convicted. And when this fellow takes an oath and says, no, it wasn't me that injured you. That must have been someone else. Did he tell the truth or not? See? And you may not know for sure, but who knows for sure? God always knows for sure, right? And I think that's what he's saying here. When this fellow takes this oath, then, Lord, you know whether he's guilty or not, and you deal with him according to justice. I believe that's what he's saying there. Anybody got other thoughts about that? I believe that was it. Verse 33. Now he's going to start dealing with, for the most part, Israel sort of as a whole. Sometimes individually. But it's, it's interesting uh, that verse 31, he says, if a man does something... Verse 33, it says, when your people Israel, so he didn't say if, did he? Hmm. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. He says, when? It's almost like Solomon is it's not, he's looking, he doesn't have a crystal ball, but he probably has some good reason to think this could happen in the future. Right? Why would he think that something like that? Surely Israel wouldn't uh, sin against God and God bring about their defeat, would they? Track record. 
Um, they began murmuring and complaining before they got out, out of sight of Egypt, didn't they? And all through the wilderness. And then once they conquered the promised land and the roughly 300 years of the judges, how would you describe those 300 years in the nation of Israel during the time of the judges? They were rebellious. They were rebellious. What the word is in my mind is it was a cycle, right? God blessed them. They were happy. They were prosperous. Their crops were growing. Everything was good. And then they forgot God. And they drifted away. And they worshiped idols. So God would send one of the nations around them to punish them. And sometimes it was for a good many years. I think one case it was 18 years or so. And then they would see their error and they would repent and they would cry to the Lord for help and he would raise one of the judges and they would throw off the yoke of oppression and then they would prosper again. And then the cycle would repeat itself. And it did that if I remember right about what, 12 or 13 times in those, those 300 years. So that's what was it. So Solomon knew about all that, didn't he? And if it happened in the past, the track record, as Nathan said, he was pretty sure it was going to happen again. And so he probably knew about Leviticus chapter 26. Are you familiar with Leviticus chapter 26? I've got it here. I'm going to read just, I'm going to read just a little bit of it. It's pretty long. I'm not going to read all of it. But first, I want... Uh, to see the, the good part of it. He says, beginning with verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their season so that the land will yield its produce and trees of, of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing uh, will last from uh, your grape gathering and the grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. I will also grant peace I will also eliminate harmful beasts from the land, and no sword will pass uh, through your land. But uh, you will chase your enemies, and they will fall before your sword. Five of you will chase a hundred. I'll skip some of it here. but And so I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you, and you will eat uh, the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. In other words, there's just more than enough to eat. Now listen to this. Moreover... I will make my dwelling among you. Now, this is the God of heaven. This is the creator of everything. What if he said to you, I'm going to make a dwelling with you, and my soul will not reject you, and I will also walk among you and be your God, and ye shall be my people. I am the Lord your God. Wow. That's all I can say. The God of heaven says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. It reminds me of 1 John 3 and verse 1. What does that say about you and I and our God? I know 1 John 3 verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. 
You're God's child as a Christian. Just like God said to these people, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. What a problem. And we're blessed even more. But then in verse 14, he says, but if you do not obey me, and I'm not going to read nearly all of this, but verse 17, I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. And then he says, and if that doesn't get your attention, I'm going to do something else. And if that doesn't get your attention, I'm going to do even more. And if that, and finally, they were going to be defeated, de defeated, their nation destroyed, and go into exile, and they would live in a foreign country. If you don't obey me, those are the things he's going to. And I think some of these things is what Solomon is looking back at. And he's thinking about those things right now. Now, that's not the end of chapter 26. We're going to go back to that in a few minutes and see what else God said about it. And so, beginning here in verse 33, who is it that Solomon is thinking about? Who is on Solomon's mind here? Is it himself? No, he's, he's thinking about his brethren. He's thinking about his Jewish brethren, aren't we? And he's praying on their behalf. And knowing full well, it's likely they're going to need God's forgiveness down the road. Of course, we always need it all the time. But he's talking about times that they would really turn against him. And so he says in verse 34, Then, then Lord, when, when they turn to you again, the end of verse 33, and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house here in heaven. Did you notice that? He said, here in heaven. He didn't say, Lord, I need you to hear in this little room back in the back of the temple that we just built. The most holy place. He didn't say you hear from there, did he? <laughs> you know, earlier in this chapter, he said, well, you know, this, this house I built, that can't contain God. Even the heavens here couldn't contain God talking about the skies as I understand it. So he knew that that place represented God's presence, but that's not where God's home is. God's in heaven. He said, Lord, when they repent, listen from heaven and forgive. Second Peter 3 and verse 12 tells us that, the, uh, that God hears the righteous, but he doesn't, doesn't listen to the unrighteous. James 5 and verse 15, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, right? And so he's, he's not asking God to hear them in their sin, but when they repent it, when they repent it. Turn to the uh, 103rd Psalm, just a minute, Psalm 103. always really like this beginning verse with verse 10 that is he that is God has not dealt with us according to our sins nor regarded regarded us according to our iniquities for as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us 
And of course, from our perspective in history, we know that that's all made possible by the blood of Christ, right? Otherwise, otherwise that wouldn't be possible. Turn over to the 130th Psalm. Verse 3, if thou, O Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. So if God just marked iniquities and that was it, how many of us would be able to stand in the judgment? Nobody. But Jesus and his sacrifice makes it possible for God to be. Remember this in the book of Romans, that God is not only just, but he is what else? The justifier. He is just and the justifier. Justice demands punishment for the sin, right? And so there must be a price that's paid. So how can he be the justifier then? Justice, we've all sinned, so the wages of sin is death. How can he be the justifier if he's just? His son pays the price, pays the penalty, right, in our place. So he can be, because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice, he can be just and the justifier. And so here Solomon is asking God to remember these people when they repent. You know, they're, they're probably going to sin against you, but when they repent, then listen to their, their prayer and, and forgive. Verse 35 and, and all of this, by the way, all of this is back in Leviticus chapter 26, if we were to have, have the time to go down the line. Uh, verse 35, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they pray toward this place and, and confess your name and turn from their sin uh, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel that in, and indeed teach them the good way in which they should walk and send the rain on your land uh, which you have given your people for inheritance. So um, talking about a time when there would be, he, he's withheld the rain from them. You, you remember a time in the history of Israel that happened? In the days of Elijah, what was it? Three years, I believe it was. No rain. And then the... Uh, Contest on Mount Carmel, remember that? We'll reference that again here in a few moments, maybe. So he's asking, asking God, when you, when you do that, and then the people see the error of their ways, and they repent turn and, and turn from their sin. See, verse 35, and turn from their sin. See, that, that helps us understand what repentance really is, right? Repentance is more than just feeling sorry for what you did, isn't it? But you're actually doing so. You're changing your life. That's what repentance is. And so he says, when they turn from their sin, then, Lord, please hear them from heaven and forgive. But look, he said a little, it's a little more than that this time. Look at the rest of verse 36. Forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel. Indeed, Teach them the good way in which they should walk. So how does that happen? The priests, okay. 
It was the priest's job, right, under the old law, the Old Testament. Everybody didn't have the Bible that we've got those days, and, and I suspect not even a copy of the law, but the priests did, and it was their job to go around and make sure everybody uh, knew the law. And not only that, he sent prophets as well, right? And so God used those to teach the people uh, the good way in which they should walk. Unfortunately, the priests and the prophets didn't always do that, did they? You remember, Jeremiah prophesied during the last days of, of Judah and through the destruction of Jerusalem and a little bit past that. In Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 30, he said, An appalling and a horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority. And my people love it so. But what will they do at the end of it? So what had happened? What's he saying was happening in Jerusalem now? Not listening to God, the prophets and the priests are saying what the people wanted to hear rather than telling them what they needed to hear, right? Does any of that happen today? What, what did Paul say in, was it 2 Timothy 4? Timothy preached the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, is all long suffering for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But we heap to have teachers having itching ears. When we study the Bible, we need to do it with a genuine love for the truth and a desire to learn what the Bible said, not make it support whatever I already believe, right? We got to have that attitude toward it. Unfortunately, not everybody has that attitude. So the priest didn't do what about in the New Testament? Where is this teaching today? in the church supposed to come from. Ephesians chapter four. Who said it? Okay. What in Ephesians four, you remember what it says? God has given some as apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. And it's intended to mature us as Christian and and uh, for the work of service and so that you won't be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. In Acts chapter twenty and verse twenty eight Paul talking to the Ephesian elders says, Take heed to yourselves, to the church over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he's purchased with his own blood. So we, we see that God has always provided for his people to have a, a, a way of knowledge, of learning the way in which they should live and should walk, right? It's always in that way. Turn to Second uh, Chronicles chapter 36, the very last chapter of Second Chronicles. And the point I want to make here is that yes, the shepherds, and in that case the apostles and the prophets and the teachers, they all have a responsibility to teach God's word and do it accurately and without uh, discrimination between anybody but the hearers have some responsibility too right look at uh, 2 Chronicles 36 
I'm just going to start in verse 14. It says, Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defied the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem, and the Lord, the God of Israel, of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. He said, God loves you. And he sent messengers again and again and again. Verse 16, but they continually mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against the people until there was no remedy. Until there was no remedy. So, the teaching must be done, but the listening has to be has to be done too. God sent the prophets, but they didn't pay attention, and we're gonna we're gonna have to hurry. So, uh, verse thirty-seven: uh, If there is a famine in the land, and there is pestilence, mildew, grasshopper, and so forth, and again, if your people repent, uh, verse thirty-nine: Then here in heaven. And notice there he says, render to each according to the way. So he kind of gets on an individual level here. Um, and he wraps that up. He says, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land. Verse 41, he talks about the foreigner. If there a foreigner comes into the land, and I'm going to paraphrase here because we're running out of time, but foreigner comes into the land and he prays to you, then listen to his prayer basically is what he's saying because uh, other peoples have heard about you. Do you remember a, a place in the scriptures we're talking about where the people that weren't Jews, boy, they had heard about what God was doing. Do you remember? Maybe, maybe Rahab, <laughs> remember that? He says that our hearts have melted. You know, They knew they couldn't stand before Israel because God was with them. And so others had heard about it, and so some of them, he said, are gonna come and they're gonna petition you, and I pray that you'll listen Listen to their prayers. I think uh, maybe the Ethiopian eunuch might have been one of those. Huh? Verse 44. When your people go out to battle against an enemy in whatever way that you may send them. So here's a case where God was sending them against the enemy. And he's praying for them in those cases that you uh, hear from heaven and maintain their cause. If you send them out, then support them in their efforts. Verse 46, and when they, they, when they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you're angry with them and deliver, deliver them to an enemy so that they uh, take them away in captive and far off or near. He's saying, uh, verse 48, if they return with all their heart. That's an important phrase there too. They didn't just half-heartedly return. He says, when they return with all your heart, then listen to their supplication from heaven and forgive. And he talked about in verse 50 that even the enemy would have some compassion on them. Do we know of a case where that happened? Cyrus. Did somebody say Cyrus? Yep, so that happened then, allowed a remnant to return. So then he uh, uh, turns his uh, attention back to the people. Verse 56, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all he's promised. And listen to this. This is important too. 
Not one word has failed of all, the good, of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses. He said, everything God has ever promised to you, he's done it. He's kept his promises. I always think of Hebrews 10 and verse 23. He's writing to Jewish Christians who are suffering, being persecuted. Some are wavering in their faith. It's tough being a Christian. And he says, let, let us hold our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, that's what he said to Jewish Christians. He said, you know, God's faithful and he'll keep his promises. Why should they believe that? It's easy to say it. Why should they believe when whoever the Hebrew writer was says, God always keeps his promises. Why should they believe that? Just look back at your history. He's always, every time he's ever made a promise, he's always kept it. And he'll keep that promise of that hope in heaven with you as well. Verse 56, that he may uh, not leave us nor forsake us. Remind me of Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, where he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. We got the same promise, don't we? Got the same, same promise. Verse 61, let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to the Lord our God. Does anybody know what 2 Chronicles 16 in verse 9 says? 2 Chronicles 16 and verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may, listen to this, strongly support those whose heart is completely his. He says he's looking around throughout the world and he's looking for you because your heart is completely his so that he can support you in this world. That's what he does. And so Solomon is telling the people, you need to be wholly devoted to the Lord and he's not going to ever leave you nor forsake you. So lots of more could be said about that. We've got to move on. Turn over to through 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and we got about a minute. <laughs> 2 Chronicles chapter 7. So Solomon has just completed his prayer. And he says, Now when Solomon has finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord filled the house. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down, and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave praise to the Lord. Have you ever, I know you all have uh, heard of or maybe even talked to a soldier or somebody who's been in combat and you hear what they've got to say. But it's hard to really connect that and really feel what it must be like. But let me tell you, if you're there and that first round comes in and there's a big, huge explosion. You say to yourself, man, this is real. This is not pretend anymore, is it, Bruce? This is the real deal. Think about what all this prayer, and they prepared the, uh, the temple, and the ark is put in there now, and, God, and Solomon finishes his prayer, and fire comes from heaven. Boy, they're not going to forget this is the real deal. This is the God of heaven we serve. 
and I'm going to come to him with my whole heart. Our time is gone. We'll, be, we'll close it right there. And Lord willing, uh, Brian will be back next week. We didn't get, get back to Leviticus 26. But the end of that, God says, even after all your sin, I'm, I'm not going to forget you. I'm not going to forget you, and he, and he didn't.